0: You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit
1: our website at gccugene.org.
0: Exodus, deliverance, a way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom, a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. Good morning.
1: If you guys would go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Exodus, we're going to continue our series this morning. I'm fighting a cold, so hang in there with me this morning, church family. So Exodus chapter 19, that's where we're going to be at. If you guys would go ahead and turn there, we're continuing in our series through Exodus titled grace upon grace. Let me say this. If you're here for the first time visiting, and maybe you're here for the first time checking out the claims of Christianity, we're jumping into a big text, a big passage that is displaying who God is, especially in regard to his holiness. And so hang in there with me till the end, hope that you walk out of here, even if you are not a Christian with a clear understanding of what the Christian message is, so that becomes clear to you. So turn to Exodus chapter 19 as we dive in this morning. Before we do, I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this morning, for this time. And thank you, Father, for your word. In a world confused with what truth is, in a world where we try to make truth something subjective, God, you've given us your word as the ultimate standard of truth. Through it, you've revealed who you are and you've revealed specifically, God, how you save. We praise you that we're not saved by mustering up our own merits, by trying to make ourselves pleasable in your sight. Father, we're thankful and praise you this morning that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so, Father, where we need to be challenged, let your word challenge us. Where we need to slow down this morning, slow us down. Where we need healing, bring healing through your gospel. Father, we recognize that in a church family that there's so many... Different ways in which we show up on a Sunday morning. Some in here are grieving, some in here are hurting, some in here are rejoicing. And so Father, I pray that we would know that we serve a God that grieves and hurts and rejoices with us. And I praise you that we don't have to go at it alone, but you've provided a family for us. So as we understand who you are this morning, Father, I pray that the result of that is worship. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our main point is gonna be a people, two words. And I can expound on and say a people, specifically a saved people, a set apart people, and a sent people. So that's gonna be our three categories. A people, specifically a saved people, a set apart people, and a sent people. So a people saved who were set apart by God and sent to live on mission for God. So I wanna start off by telling you guys this story. When I was about 14 years old, I had a friend named Travis, and Travis and I started to have sleepovers together. And Travis's parents didn't have, I don't know, the decency to let us know that Travis talks in his sleep like a lot. I mean a lot. They made no mention of this whatsoever, So the first night he's sleeping over, I don't know if this is weird, I'm I'm just sharing it. So as I share it, I'm realizing maybe it's a little weird, but like, as two 14-year-old boys, we slept in the same bed together. Nothing weird, that's just, we did sleepovers, okay? And to be honest, when I go on men's retreats nowadays, if I have a choice between sharing a bed with another dude or the ground, I'm normally taking the bed. So there you go. So I'm in bed with my buddy Travis, we're 14. It's the middle of the night, and I'm awakened to Travis telling me something. And he's pointing on the ceiling and he's saying, he's like, it's going faster, it's going faster, it's going faster. And so I'm freaked out. And so I am getting underneath his finger and aligning myself with where he is pointing and talking. I'm like, I'm not seeing it, man. And I don't know what you're talking about. And so this goes on for a couple minutes and I'm like, my goodness, I'm like, I think this friendship's pretty much going to be over. This is how it ends. I was like, hey, I'm just... I'm like, I I don't understand. What are you saying? He goes, just forget about it and rolls over. I'm like, oh my gosh. And so it's like a gremlin with no manual for him. And so the next morning I was like, hey man, what was up with that last night? When when you were doing the whole like ceiling, it was going faster and I couldn't track whatever. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, what? This... And so this became a norm over and over and over again. I mean, he did this like on on a nightly basis. So anytime he hung out, so I just started to get a kick out of it. Well, four of us went snowboarding once, and we all stayed in a hotel room. And I knew all about Travis, but my other buddies didn't. So they're like, how are we going to split up the whole bed situation? I was like, you know what? I'll I'll sleep over here with Jordan. Travis and Brian can sleep together. Oh, boy. Middle of the night... Travis starts this thing. This time it was a spider in his bed. A spider, a spider. And then it was like a bunch of other stuff. Brian, a, a, a large man, leaps out of his bed, out of his bed, onto our bed. And he's like, I'm not doing the spider thing, you know? And so, and he's like, and I can't understand the rest of what he's saying. And so I explained to Brian, I was like, hey man, he's asleep. He does this like every night and you're not going to track what he's saying. I share that story to say this. In all of my years of hanging out with Travis, I realize I can't make sense of what he's saying. I can't make sense of what he's saying in the middle of the night. I can't try to make sense of it. It's so unclear. When other people have experienced this, it's unclear to them. Here's what we have to see and know this morning. There are some things in our Bible that are somewhat unclear and hard to understand. What we're going to see today and what we're going to see next week is it's clear who God is as he's revealing himself as holy. And it's also clear on how God saves by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. In fact, the Protestant reformers were fighting for what's called perpiscuity. And what that means is they were saying that the Bible is clear, not on all things, but it's clear unto salvation, how, who God is and how God saves. And so when we're gonna look at this this morning, and as we start to unfold the 10 commandments, as we start to unfold how God speaks, he speaks very clearly about who he is and how he saves and how we are as Christians, to conduct our lives and live. The problem is, is we like to try to interpret stuff and breathe and bring our own interpretation into stuff that's explicit. And And so we're gonna look at that this morning, that we're a saved people by God, that we're a set apart people, and that we're a people that are sent. So read with me Exodus 19. As we're starting to see, as this narrative has unfolded, God has been doing something this entire time. He's been revealing himself to his people. God is speaking, God has spoke. As we're seeing here, God is getting ready to speak very directly to Moses and he's speaking through Moses, but it is authoritative because it is coming from God himself. So on the third new moon, Exodus 19.1, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. Look here, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples.'" For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pause there and and recognize and see something. Again, maybe you're familiar with this because you've been walking through the series with this. Maybe you're not because you haven't, man, and this is new for you. What's happened in the Exodus narrative, what's happened in this account is God has saved his people. He has saved his nation, the Israelites. What we have to see and what we have to understand is this, is that God has saved his people and brought them out of oppression, out of slavery, out of bondage from the Egyptian. And he has brought them into a relationship with him. He has not yet given them his law, but he will. One of the biggest misunderstandings about the Christian message is this, that we think that God shows up and says, hey, here's my law. Here you go. Obey this, and if you obey this really well and do it really well, then you can be my people. But what we have to see here is the order of salvation. In other words, the way that God works is not like that at all. Look again at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings. This phrase, eagle's wings, is saying God carried them out God is the one that carried them out. God is the one that brought them out. In Isaiah 40, 31, we have a verse that says this, but they who wait, wait means hope. Those who wait and hope and put their trust in the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And people put these on coffee mugs and on the refrigerators and they're like, look at what I'm going to do. This is all about God's grace and what God does. God saves He's the one that bore them up. He's the one that brought them out of Egypt. He's the one that brought them to Christian safety. And if we don't understand that, then we misunderstand the message of Christianity and what's also being conveyed here. Alec Matir, a scholar and expositor says this, that we can never, ever <clears throat> allow anything to interpret or upset the order here. So again, he is saying That we can't let anything mess up the order that we have here. That it's first that God brings them out. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant. We recognize this that in Exodus 4, God says, Hey, you are my firstborn son. And he's talking to Israel, they are already his people. God has saved his people, he's brought them out. They are in the wilderness. Now they are at Sinai to worship him, but God has done that. He is the one who has accomplished that. We, as Christians, could say the same thing that the nation of Israel could at this point. What Alec Mentir also goes on to say is what we have in Exodus and what we have at this point is a clear picture of what the gospel is. It is a clear picture of what the gospel is. It says here, what we have here is in fact the largest, most extended visual aid ever planned. The journey from the Passover in Egypt to the giving of the law at Sinai. And again, like I said, he goes on to say, nothing must ever be allowed to upset this order. What is he saying, the greatest visual aid? In the Old Testament, in the Exodus account, we have a picture of the gospel. If you talk to an Israelite at Mount Sinai, what would they say? They would tell you this. They would say, hey, we were once in bondage and enslaved to an oppressive master. But we found shelter under the blood of the lamb. And we were delivered by God out of the oppression. And though we are in the wilderness, we are on our way to the promised land. If you ask any Christian nowadays what the gospel is, we would hope they would say something similar. We were once in bondage to our sin but we found shelter under the blood of the lamb, under Christ. And now we are on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. But we can trust that God will safely bring us there. That's what he's saying. We have a picture of here. It's not obey and then get a covenant. It's because I've saved you, you're in a covenant with me. Now, here's what people don't like. When God saves us, it's not our obedience That saves us so that we can manipulate God into loving and accepting us, like many people think that you can do. But when God saves us, He says, Hey, because I saved you, this is how you're called to live and obey as a Christian. This is what it looks like to be saved and set apart. This is what it looks like to live out your faith. And a lot of the harm that's been done in our world today and why people have problems with Christianity is, is because we like the salvation piece of God, not the headship, ruling. And people, peace of God. But He's saying, because you're my people, there's a certain way that my people are called to live and to conduct themselves in the world, so that people know that you're my people, so that you're set apart, so that people can look and say, there's something different about the way that man or that woman lives. And God says, the way that you will know, essentially, that you are my covenant people is because when I display my commands, when I tell you how to live, you don't reject those, but say, yeah, I trust you. You saved me. You brought me out. Now you're telling me how my life is best lived. I will obey that. That's how we're starting off here. And then he goes on to say, he goes, look, you're going to be my treasured possessions in in verse five. And you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests. You see, kings owned everything in the land. But what kings had is they had a special reserve or a special place where they kept what was truly precious to them. So they would understand the language that's being used here. God is saying, look, you're this for me. You're my special possession. You're my treasured possession. The one that's set, set apart that is most precious to me. But now it's time to go and be a kingdom of priests. That language is, is a bit weird for us in, in the 21st century. But what do priests do? They function as a mediator. They stand between God and between humanity. They are the people that represent God And what they do is they make sacrifices in the Old Testament so that God can dwell with humanity. They are mediators. They are representatives. And so God is saying this, I have saved you. I have set you apart. You are my treasured possession. This is how you live. And you are to model this to the world. What we also have to see here is we have to see this. We have to see that God is using temple language. Or else we'll misunderstand Exodus 19. So look at verse 2 again, and we're going to look at it in the NASB in just a second. But they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Look at the NASB. (coughs) Look at what it says. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. The front of the mountain. Mountains don't have front sides. What is Moses trying to convey? What is he trying to show? He's trying to show us and let us see that the mountain is to be seen as a temple. This is going to be helpful for you guys in understanding your Bible. This isn't just some weird abstract story that's completely removed from the whole story of the Bible. In fact, this is what God's intention was from the outset of our Bibles. If you look at the very beginning, God has Eden. And it's the place where God dwells with humanity, with Adam and Eve. Those are his people, and he's dwelling with them in Eden. And he gives them a command to be fruitful and multiply. He gives them a command to not eat of a certain tree. So God is giving them his commands on how to live. But what they're supposed to do is be fruitful and multiply, and they're supposed to show the rest of the world who God is and what he's like. Inside of Eden, you have a garden, so it gets a little bit closer, and then inside of the garden, you have the tree of knowledge of good and evil. See, there's layers, and they were to function as priests, representatives of God to the world, and they failed at that. And if you're here this morning, and you've never heard this term, the fall of mankind, it's when sin entered the picture. When man and woman said, thank you, God, for creating us in your image, we're going to take it from here, and we will be God ourselves. That's called the fall. Sin enters the picture, and then we see what's happened from that. The biggest thing that happened from that, though, the biggest thing, was a separation from God. And in fact, God places a, a cherubim with a flaming sword to protect them from ever going back inside the garden. So they're removed from the garden. God protects them from coming in. And then the rest of the story, even what we're getting at today, is this. God still wants to dwell with his creation. He desperately wants to live amongst his people. But he's holy. And so how can a holy God dwell and live amongst sinful people? How can that happen? How can a holy God live and dwell amongst his sinful people? We're also seeing the temple language here because as we go on and read throughout, we're going to see that the mountain essentially has layers. There's the top point that only Moses can access which is essentially meant to be seen as the most holy place. Then there's the second layer where priests can go, and then there's the bottom layer where the people can go. That is giving us a picture of what the temple is. Any Israelite would have picked up on that. They would recognize that you have the outer courtyard, and then you have the entrance into the tent where the most holy of holies is at. What we're seeing here is temple language. What we're seeing here is God's desire to dwell with his people, but for his people to recognize that his grace should not be presumed upon because he's holy. I love to preach grace and I love to preach the gospel. Grace is this gift that we're given that we can't claim any right to. If you give someone grace, there is nothing they can look to or point to and say, yeah, that's the reason why I have this. Grace is a gift that you can't point a single finger to, a single action, anything that someone gives us. That's what makes grace special. And here's the thing, you will never be able to transform someone's heart apart from grace. You can't heap law on someone and say, hey, hopefully if if I just keep telling you all the laws and all the commands, and we see parents doing this, hoping that law after law will transform a child's heart, the only thing that has the power to save and transform a heart is God's grace. But no one should look at God's grace and separate that from God's holiness. And that's what we're seeing in this passage today. You shouldn't look at God's grace and say, yeah, now I just can live however I want. Because God is getting to reveal himself. Yes, you are my people. Yes, you are a saved people. But you are also a set-apart people. Why? Because I'm a set-apart God. Let's look at this. In 7 through 9, Moses is repeating what happened, what God has instructed. So we're going to jump forward to verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today. Again, consecrate, temple language. And tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Let me pause there. In ancient Eastern cultures, they were built on pyramids or ziggurats, which meant there was this pyramid or the ziggurat that existed in the middle of the city. It was the focal point of worship. It's where everyone came. And what would happen is you would climb up this ziggurat or this pyramid, and what you would try to do is get close to a God. When God shows up, the one true and only God, he doesn't say come up. He says, I'm coming down. You can't make it up. You can't do enough. You can't climb high enough. I am going to have to come down to you. That's what we see here. Christianity is fundamentally different because it's not rise up, it's God coming down. We'll see that whenever Christ comes down. Verse 12, and you shall set limits for the people around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain." So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and washed the garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the, <clears throat> on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. See, the, the priests can come at a different le- level here, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits. Again, we have limits. Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. <laughs> We understand the order of salvation. God carries them out by his grace and he saves them under the blood of the lamb, out of slavery and oppression and brings them to this mountain. He doesn't say obey and then you can get, he says, you get, now obey. And now God is revealing himself. God is revealing his holiness. We love, 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 love to try and make God in our own image. And what we try to do is we try to make a God who is cute, cuddly, like a bunny, and warm and fuzzy. Yet when God reveals himself in Scripture, it's not like that. It's not cute and cuddly. In fact, if you read through your Bible, look at what happens when people have some sort of interaction with God. Genesis 17.3 records that Abraham collapsed when God spoke to him. Joshua 5 tells, tells us that Joshua collapsed when he experienced the presence of the Lord. Ezekiel 1 tells us that Ezekiel collapsed when the glory of the Lord appeared to him. Daniel 8 and 10 tell us that Daniel collapsed on the ground when he encountered the glory of the Lord. Matthew 17 records that when God's glory manifested to Peter, James, and John, all three of these men collapsed at the ground. Acts 9, 4, 26, 14 revealed that Paul collapsed at the earth when he saw Christ on the road to Damascus. Revelation 1 tells us that the apostle John collapsed at the feet of Jesus at the beginning of his vision on the island of Patmos. People that come into the presence of God or even people that have been in the presence of God like Moses, collapse. They're trembling with fear. When God shows up to Jacob in Genesis, it's a wrestling match and Jacob's hip is broken. When he shows up to Job, he comes in a storm. When Israel sings about him, they call him a man of war. When he shows up to Joshua, he's the commander of the Lord's army with a sword. As we go on into our New Testament, as we see God appear in the person and work of Jesus Christ, what we also see is the same continuing. Jesus goes up to the mountain. It's called the mountain of transfiguration. And what happens to him is there, he's transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And in all accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the same response happens. They trembled with fear. Why? In fact, Peter starts to say, hey, why don't we build some tents for you guys here? He's reciting the same language that's used as Exodus 19 because Peter realizes, oh my goodness, this is God. This is Yahweh. He's here. When when Jesus is being arrested in the garden by 300 Roman soldiers and they say, where is this Jesus? And he says, I am he. All of them fall down. You see, God is not safe, but he's good. God is good, but he's not safe. God is not warm and cuddly. God is holy. Look at what C.S. Lewis says. "An An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness. Inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us. A vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at infinite speed. The hunter, king, husband. That is quite a different matter. See, C.S. Lewis understood the same thing that N.T. Wright understood. As N.T. Wright says it this way, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the the more devastating disclosure, the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in the in-between. Why? Because if God is who God says he is, it's terrifying. And it commands our full allegiance to him. What we see today inside of Christianity, and I know this will be unsettling for you guys, and, and I tossed around whether I wanted to do this or not, but I hope that it serves as a picture of what we oftentimes do, Thomas Jefferson decided that he didn't like some of the pages that were on scripture. And so he wanted to create his own Bible. And so he did so. And so he took the word of God and he did the same thing that many people today do is they say, I like this aspect of God, the saving part, but I don't like when he tells me to live like this. And so he take it out and they toss that. They say, I like this aspect about God that he's unchanging, but I don't like that he wants to have dominion and power over how I should live and conduct myself amongst others, with sexual purity or anything like that. We'll get rid of that. I like this aspect of God, but I don't like this. And slowly, page after page, what you do is you tear out God's word until what you have left is what you want. And then you tell God, this is how I will live, not God tells you, this is how you must live. You see that. You see that nowadays. People take what they like and what they want, and they say, God, here's what we'll do. Thanks for creating us in your image, but now we'll create you in ours. We will make you how we want you to be. We want you to be safe. We want you to be kind of like a lot of the pictures of Jesus, like a surfer kind of guy, nice and cuddly, good product in your hair, all of those things. We like that. But when God reveals his holiness, the result of the Israelites was fear and trembling. Not like this cute reverence. I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I like when people just say that. This is about reverence. It's not. You see the people that interact with God. It wasn't just like, they're like, oh, wow, we have such an awe. No, they're actually terrified. <laughs> they're like, whoa, God is so holy, good. So not that, that when I come into the midst of a holiness like this, I recognize that I am not good Based upon the standard of God's goodness, Isaiah 6 displays that. In Isaiah 6, he appears before the throne room of God. And when he's there before God, he's not saying, hey, I'm better than than Joe, my neighbor over here. I'm not as good as Jane, my neighbor over here. And back and forth, he goes, my goodness, I'm unclean. I'm unworthy. I'm lost, a man of unclean lips. Deep inside, we know that we're imperfect. We know that we're broken. God's standard of holiness is perfection. He is completely set apart. He is transcendent above everything else. I believe that Hollywood knows this because there's something in us. I grew up in a family with a mom who loved scaring me. So, from the time I did not grow up in a Christian home, I mean, we were watching rated R movies from the time we were so young, horror movies. But I'd be up watching a horror movie and my mom would sneak around, crawl, and she would have these terrifying masks on. I'm not trying to paint a horrible picture of my mom, but if you guys have ever seen Tales of the Crypt, it's an old show, like we had one of those, and she would terrify me, and I loved it. And so I would do it to her. I would pop out of hallways and do stuff like that, and we would terrify each other. My daughter, Brooks, loves to do this, and she's the only one in our family that likes it, which my wife has made very clear. There is something in us, think about this, that Hollywood knows that we're pulled to what's terrifying. People pay to go on expensive rides to be scared to death. People watch movies that are terrifying. Why? Because deep within every human being created in the image of God, there is a pull toward what is holy. And the most terrifying thing for Israel was not Egypt. God squashed them like a bug. They realize now the most terrifying thing for Egypt, as we see in this passage, is their sinfulness in the midst of a holy, righteous, and good God. Yet, God tells them, set parameters so they don't break through. Set parameters so they don't break through. Because of this. When you're created in the image of a holy God, there's still something in us that is pulled toward that level of terrifying holiness and goodness. Why? Because we were created to be reconciled to him and in a relationship with him. This isn't God trying to terrify them. This isn't God saying you're just simply this or anything like this. This is simply God telling them that I want to be with you and I want to dwell amongst you. I want to have a relationship with you, but I am so holy that if you don't understand that and you come toward my holiness, it's going to consume you. Think about it. Electricity is good. But not when you put metal objects into a socket, it needs to be respected. Fire is good, but if you throw yourself into it, you'll be consumed. The sun gives light to the world it heats us. Without it, we would all be dead. But you can't see. is God too close to it or else you will burn up? And then we come to the Bible and what we need to understand is God's holiness is so holy and so good that our sinfulness, even our best days, look here, they, they are washing their garments. They are clean, cleansing themselves. They are doing the best they can. Even priests, there's no position that warrants you, no works to have access to a holy God. They couldn't scrub their garments enough. They couldn't clean themselves enough to try to get themselves back into the presence of a holy God. What God is showing and what he's displaying here is that I'm good and that I'm holy. We have, we have a denial to that. We, we don't want to admit that we aren't good. My, my friend, Steve Hirons, who's sitting over here this morning, called me a couple weeks ago and asked if I would come over and help with the situation at the store, because there was a guy who had just stolen a bunch of stuff. And so I went over there and helped him with it. And we were able to get the guy back inside and upstairs. And we were talking with them and sharing the gospel with them and all that good stuff. But, this, this, this I'll, I'll say young guy, he's in his 30s. This guy kept saying the same thing over and over again. He's like, I'm just a good guy. I'm like, the, literally the merchandise is laid out before him. Everything is there on the table and, and we're talking to him. He's like, yeah, but I'm, I, and he's like, I'm just a good, I, he's like, I just try to live a good life. I'm a good guy. I'm like, whoa, I, 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 I think you're missing it, man. Like, it's all here. It's about thousand dollars worth of stuff. There's something in us that doesn't want to admit that we haven't measured up. But when Israel comes face to face with God, it's not about comparing yourselves to other humans. It's about comparing yourself vertically and going, uh-uh, I'm not there. I don't have that. So what do we need? We see how God has saved his people. We see that God is set apart. In fact, God's holiness and what it means to be holy is set apart. God's calling his people to be set apart. What do we need? If we recognize God's holiness, if we recognize his goodness, if we recognize his power, what do we need? Well, we don't need a God who says, I'm just going to give up on justice. I'm just going to let... Things slide. We would never want to worship a God like that. We need a God who maintains his holiness and his justice and his righteousness, while at the same time can, in some way, pardon our guilt and our sin and our unrighteousness. How? God sends his son. You have to hear this. God sends his son. First, Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, so he's born holy. He's not born with a sinful nature. He's born set apart, and then Christ alone lived the life that we were intended to live. God gives his commands, and what we're going to see next week is Israel breaks all of them, but so do we. There's not a human that lives a life going, yeah, I just try to live according to the Ten Commandments. Have you tried that for one day? It's really hard. So Christ comes, and he perfectly obeys all of God's commands every moment of every day, What we see is something amazing. Christ goes up onto a mountain and and where Moses went up onto the mountain to say, give me God's law and I will convey that to people. Christ goes up to the mountain and what he says is, I'm the one who's here to actually fulfill the law that Moses gave because you can't. And so later on in his life, he goes to another mountain, which is called Calvary. And as he goes up to that mountain, he takes his holy life and lays it as a sacrifice down on the cross and says, in every way that you haven't fulfilled God's law, I have, and I'm paying the punishment for you. People say, do we see God's wrath in the New Testament? Absolutely. In the same way here, we see thunders and we see shakes and we see trembling happen. When when Christ is on the cross, the land grows dark, there's an earthquake, the rocks split because God's righteous justice wrath shows up. Only this time, in this text, it says, be careful that the people don't go this far because I will break out against them. This time on the cross, God doesn't break out against the unholy. God breaks out against the Holy One, His Son. As all the sin is laid upon Him, God pours out His wrath and His condemnation for sin, maintaining His holiness, maintaining His justice, while at the same time pardoning sinners' guilt. And offering forgiveness. God upholds his holiness and gives forgiveness. How and why? Only one way through the ultimate and perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. At the moment Christ died, the veil was torn. And it was torn what direction? Not bottom to top, top to bottom, showing this that the way of salvation, the way for us to be reconciled back to God, was provided by God, not by human efforts but by God, through the work of his son. And so now we have divine access into the most holy place. Let me ask this. Why is it that it is so hard for us to acknowledge and admit that we are broken people in need of God's grace and someone to have a holy life offered to us? Why I can't live? Why is it so hard? Because pridefully, what we would have to admit is that God, I can't live the life that I was intended to live. I can't get myself back to you. And so God says, that's right. I've done it. I have come down. I came down on Sinai and I've, came, uh, and I've come down here through the person and work of my son. And only I am the one that brings you back into a restored relationship with me. Listen, if you are here and you are offended, good. (laughs) Because if you're not offended by preaching, my guess is that the church that you're a part of is not preaching God's word. It should offend us. We shouldn't create a God that's so close that if we just make a couple tweaks in our life, we can just bridge our way into the gap. The chasm is massive of God's holiness and of our brokenness that even Isaiah says that even your best works and efforts are like filthy rags to God. Faithful preaching puts God as transcendent as he is and our brokenness over here. And it makes the cross of Jesus so magnificent when we see what he's done to bridge and bring us back together. You know, the language of the Bible should make us squirm when it talks about holiness. It should really make us squirm. Let's look at some verses here. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3 says this. This is Paul writing to the people in Corinth. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs, their Lord, and ours. Look at here. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, The Greek word here for sanctified is hagiazo. And what it means is that we are set apart. So when Paul addresses the church in Corinth, he says this, to those set apart, to those holy, to those sanctified. It's a verb. It's something that God has done. To those that God has done this for in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. What's the Greek word for saints? Hagios. Hagios. It's an adjective to describe someone who's holy and set apart. When God's word addresses us, when we've placed our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, we are called set apart. We're called the holy ones. We are called the sanctified ones. In fact, so much so that when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he says, our father who is in heaven. And then what does he say? Hallowed be your name. What is the Greek word there? Hagios be your name. Holy be your name. The same language to refer to God's holiness is referred to those that are in Christ. No distinction. In fact, the same translation here for hagios is also translated later in the letter of, uh, to Hebrews as the most holy place. When we're referred to as God's set apart ones, what we are referred to is the same level of holiness. And let this unsettle you. The same level of holiness that God has, Christ had. And when he gave that to us, we are as holy as God in his sight. And you have to be, otherwise you can't have access into his presence. So when God looks at you, because we see a lot about garments here. And like I said, we see a lot about temple language What we understand is they were trying their best, just like Adam and Eve in the garden with fig leaves. And then God's like, that's not going to work. So let me make you garments. And so he did. What we understand is when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, what he does is he gives us his garments of righteousness, of purity, of cleanliness, of perfection. And he puts that on us so that we will never be seen or defined by anything other than sinless, righteous, set apart, holy saints in God's eyes. It never changes. Which means this, that impacts the way that we live. That impacts the way that we live as Christians. To know that God has done that for us, a holy, good, and righteous God has done that, it impacts the way that we live. One, we go boldly into his throne, we rush in to have access with God through prayer. There are no limits, there are no more courtyards, there are no more steps that we have to go through, we dwell in the presence of God because we are as holy God, not because we've lived that way, but because Christ has and gave that to us. Let me end with this, that we're called, we are a people, a saved people, a set-apart people, and now we are sent people, which means this. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 4. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God. Chosen and precious. Do you believe that in God's eyes that you're chosen and precious? Because his word says you are. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be, holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Priest language. What's he saying? The Israelites failed to put my display as sent people to the world, to be a city on a hill, to be light in darkness. What God has done is he has saved a people called the church. And it's no longer a temple that's over there. He dwells inside of us and together we are a temple of living stones built on the, uh, on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. And what we are to the world is we are priests, we're medi- mediators. And we're called to live a life in such a way to where people look in and say, man, there is something different about the way they love and live and serve others, including one another. But it also means this, we are sent people. Meaning that we can't sit on the sidelines and just hope that non Christians or people will make their way magically to us. As Christians, we're called to get in the mess of people's lives. We're called to be sent. Light has no use unless it's in dark places. We're not called to take and be a holy huddle that isolates themselves from the world. We're called to be set apart from the world, but live amongst it. And so, my challenge to us is as sent people, how we live, how we love, how we serve. But how we get invested in people's lives matters. How we live lives matters. We are called to live holy lives because God has made us holy. We're not achieving it through how we live. He's set us apart as that. Now we live out of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We're not left to try to make sense of what's unclear. What is clear is how you save and who you are. And we praise you for that. Let us rejoice this morning as we recognize that you're holy, that you've made us holy. And now let us as saints live holy lives. In Jesus' name we pray.